the mentors. Hey, hey there. Hey there. This Hi. is Vadim. And of course, this is his brother Sergey. Over the last couple of months, Vadim and I took on a new concept. This concept called scaling mentorship. And for us, obviously, what part of what we think we do on the mentors pretty well is get great insights and mentorship moments from the entrepreneurs and leaders that we interview and bring them to you, our audience. And we thought that why not do this for other organizations that already exist, do it in a live event for their employees. So interview leaders and CEOs of companies in front of their employees at a live event, unabridged, unedited, right there in the raw. Exactly. And there's a few things that happen in live events. Uh, the way that the conversation goes is a little bit different. You have the cr- crowd that's reacting. Uh, it's actually more fun. I mean, that's why sitcoms back in the day were recorded in front of a live audience. I guess some of them still are. Because you get a different feel and energy from the actors. And the same thing happens on stage when you're doing a live event and a live interview. So even though we love our in-studio interviews, the live events just have a certain je ne sais quoi to them. And our very first one is... A doozy. Yes, we have a live event at least once a week for the next four weeks, which is exciting. And the first one we're bringing to you is the CEO of Nixon Peabody, Andrew Glinshevadim. Tell everyone a little bit about Andrew because he's got quite a fascinating story, which you'll hear today. He's had a very impressive career as a lawyer. He joined Nixon Peabody, it was called Peabody and Brown, back when it was only 100 person law firm. He very soon after that became a partner and eventually rose the ranks to become CEO of the law firm. It is now a 1500 person law firm. They're doing over half a billion dollars a year in revenue. Uh, They're a massive global organization. And as a matter of fact, it's a global 100 law firm and his story was incredible because he does things a little bit differently. Yeah, he's not your typical lawyer. So anyone listening to this that is interested in the legal profession, currently in it perhaps even, or even if you're not, there's going to be some great nuggets that you're going to take away from from Andrew because he doesn't consider himself a typical lawyer. In fact, he, he got bored practicing law, which you'll hear a little bit into the episode. All right, so no more talk from us. Well, there is going to be during the episode, but not in this introduction. Please enjoy our conversation with Andrew Glincher of Nixon Peabody. All right, how's everybody doing today? You guys awake? Let's see what time it is. Oh, it's 10 a.m. You should be awake now. You guys are up all hours of the night. All right. Welcome back to The Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And this is a show where we tell stories about ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And sometimes it's all three, sometimes it's one or the other, but we know that everyone has their own obstacles. And we decided to sit down with uh, Andrew Glincher, the CEO of Nixon Peabody today, to understand how he was able to develop his own career and hopefully share that with some of the folks that uh, work with him and for him and our audience listening to the podcast. So, Andrew, we'd like to get started. You know, when we look around at this office, we look at the the folks in this room, um, we we see a lot of different types of faces and we see uh, people people that represent a lot of different backgrounds. And when we look at you, I would say that you now as the CEO of Nixon Peabody seem like somebody that fits very well in this chair, sitting in the CEO position. But we know the history is a little bit different than that. So I'm wondering, when you were growing up, did you ever see yourself as somebody that would become a lawyer and then eventually even potentially run a law firm? Is that something that ever crossed your mind? It matters at what age. (laughs) Um, So I'd hate to answer a question with a question. I knew I wanted to go to law school 
to combine it with uh, business school. I didn't envision myself at a large law firm or, or running a large law firm. I figured it was more likely I would be running a business, perhaps in a real estate business or something, and uh, take my education and with my undergrad business background and, and do something in business. Mm-hmm. So no, not, I wouldn't say this, this would not have been a chapter I would have foreseen. And so what if we back up even before you had the degree? Because my understanding is that you're the first in your family to go to college. Is that right? First to graduate. First to graduate. Okay. So, you know, let, let's back up to your childhood. Tell us a little bit about, let's paint a picture of what actually was going on in your childhood and whether that possibility was open for you in your own mind. Well, the possibility of of going to college uh, was always open, and it was something that despite extremely humble economic beginnings, uh, that we were always encouraged to go to school and to graduate from school. Uh, That being said, I'm one of three. I'm the oldest of three, and I'm the only one still in my family to go get and complete a college degree. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's an expectation, and that's what I think... Parents, especially, you know, whether your family's coming from another country or whatever, it's always education, 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 and you need to do that. So I knew from early on I would go to college, never knew just, you know, what I'd be studying and things like that. Now, you did mention, though, that you had an idea that maybe you'd be in business for yourself, maybe it'd be real estate or something. Aside from the fact that you graduated, I guess, with a business degree, were there entrepreneurs in your family? Were there other sort of role models like that that you thought, you know what, I might want to do something like that at some point in my life? Well, my dad drove a cab for 20 years, but he ended up having a sub shop. And I ended up working at that sub shop starting at age six. Hmm. I would run the register, cash register. Looks nothing like registers today. There were no credit cards. Um, (laughs) So forget that. And I learned a lot about dealing with people and money. And eventually in high school, I competed. It was usually teachers uh, or people that didn't have jobs during the summer competing for a summer recreation concession stand to run it. And you agree to lease it for X dollars. And I went in and was interviewed based on my experience I had had in the sub shop because I was a 16-year-old kid. And they're like, they're looking at me and they've got people that are double or triple my age. And they're like, what do you know about this? And I said, here's what I would plan. Here's the menu. And I'm very confident I can do this. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't tell them I was commuting on a bicycle and uh, (laughs) how I was going to stock things and things like that. But I did it for a couple summers. Very lucrative especially that time in my life, you know, it ended up being probably four or five times what I could have made if I had uh, worked in the grocery store. And so can you tell us a bit about where you got that confidence? Because it's not natural for everyone. As adults, sometimes we develop confidence or we learn how to fake it a little bit sometimes. But as a 16-year-old, where do you get the confidence to, especially when you're riding your bike there, to actually talk like this? That's a good question. I would say, get, you know, you get confidence from your family. Sometimes, and sometimes you don't. And if you don't get it from your family, you certainly got to find it with your friends and other people you deal with in life because not everybody has positive family experiences. I, I did. So there wasn't, nobody said, you can't do this. Hmm. So what was your trajectory then right after school? Uh, because a lot of people, they graduate, especially with a degree like that where you can apply to a lot of different areas. What was the very next thing that you did in your path and why did you choose? Out of high school or out of college? College. Um, I chose to, I had an undergraduate degree in finance and, and marketing, and I chose to go to work. 
uh, and I went out to the West Coast in L.A. and worked for a company uh, in financial services called Prudential and uh, ended up being doing financial analyst type duties. But the, how they convinced me to take that jo- job over other jobs, I had offers from a lot of the banks to go in and go in their training program uh, and some retailers. And I took that job because they promised me that half of my work would be I would get to work with the number two person, the executive vice president. Mm. And I thought, wow, that's got to be great experience. You know, sitting looking at people in this room won't even remember. Uh, there's something called microfiche, okay, <laughs> that you could look at under a scope, almost like a, uh, a microscope where you could look at data. Way back when, uh, you didn't, you weren't going to printers or, or computers. So you would look at, you know, I didn't want to just be reviewing finance and, ac- and accounting records. That to me was a real snoozer. The <laughs> other good part about it was they had flexible hours. So I could go in at 7 a.m. because I usually get up early and be done at three and, and hit uh, Venice Beach or Santa Monica Beach, which was really cool. Were you a surfer? Um, no. Do I look like a surfer? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You did. I saw that you did yoga, and I wouldn't necessarily guess that either. Yeah, it's, 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 it's more of a stretch these days. But <laughs> no pun intended. I'm None. That's actually a really good point that you made, though. Uh, it sounds like you had the opportunity, or at least you had enough savvy to recognize that being close to the top would give you certain insight. Now, do you feel like then you did have more opportunities because of that? Like maybe a new gig opened up and you got promoted faster? Or what was the ultimate benefit of being close to the VP? This was a really boring job, by and large. Okay. Um, and, and part of the things with jobs and experiences, you sort of need experiences that aren't that great at least to rule out what you want to do or don't want to do. And while the people were extremely nice and I got plenty of opportunities and met some really good people, I knew I didn't want to sit in an office with all of those folks doing things related to what I studied for years to come. I knew that wasn't, you know, my thing. It was very regimented. It was extremely structured, very hierarchical. And, you know, it's just like, okay, I could spend the next 20 or 30 years making a name or in, and where I have little to no control over my career. Mm-hmm. Or I could pursue a law degree, which whether or not I practice, I have a license to practice, and I always have the ability to hang it out and make a living and work for myself. So to me, having financial independence through the ability to set up your own business was partly what drove me to law, besides a, a keen interest. That's interesting because, you know, I think now in this day and age, switching careers is very common Mm -hmm. for people and we're always looking for the next thing that we could do. But maybe when in your time, I guess it was the 80s when you were doing this, it wasn't as common. Is that, again, does that come from... Or maybe, I don't know if it was a comedy because that's when I was born and I didn't understand anything back then. But is that something that, you know, you just kind of were the kind of person that made these decisions based on the opportunities you saw? Or was there someone in your life that opened up that uh, kind of thinking for you? No, I sort of did it myself. Yeah. I didn't. I mean, I was, I've been fortunate and blessed with very close friends that do different things and advisors, although a lot of people that advise me are no longer around. But it's, uh, you know, it just, I just saw that very clearly that that was not going to be my destiny and that I needed to figure out something else and I didn't want to do that. And, you know, you should never, I mean, I drew, you only know what your experiences are, right? We're all some of our experiences. 
So my big sum of experience, other than I had worked at several other jobs, uh, was this. And, you know, corporate life, inside corporate life, even though I worked with nice people and had good responsibility from day one, was, you know, just what didn't feel like where I wanted to be. And you mentioned advisors and people that could steer you in certain ways, um, or at least people that showed you other career possibilities. How do you find advisors, or even throughout your life, how do you attract people to mentor and advise you? Persistence. In what <laughs> yeah. way? Be a pain in the ass. Pretty good like that. You hear that? Listen um, to <laughs> yeah, So, no, I mean, everybody assumes because of whatever job you have that, you know, you're too busy or you they're afraid sometimes to approach you and, and things like that. What I found is I just ask people questions. And I've always been amazed at how people are always willing to take time. Like, I'm, I'm a huge believer in lifelong learning. I need to learn something every day. And I believe I can learn something from everyone I deal with. Hmm. So there's all of those opportunities. It's endless. And I love dealing with people. So for me, you know, that's what you do. I mean, you, it's just, I wasn't, people don't believe this, but I was introverted in high school. I was not an extrovert. I hmm. would not want to go into a room where I did not know people. Um, I would not begin a discussion with anybody unless they were a friend of mine and I had had repeated, you know, occurrences of being with them. Hmm. But people were willing to talk to you. I remember when I first took this role on and one of my first meetings was a global 100 of the 100 top law firms in the world meeting of CEOs and managing partners. And, and I went there and I just, you know, people were very welcoming, even though we're competitors. Hmm. You know, we're really, we're in an industry with flat you know, demand, the way you grow is by taking it from competitors. And even though we're competitors, we get together and I've got great relationships with all of them. And I think people are just flattered that you ask them a question. And I ask a lot of people questions because that's when I learn things. And then you take all that information that you have and you make your own decision. Yeah. In, in our business, you know, this was, has been a business based on precedent. Because lawyers think about, okay, what's precedent in terms of cases when you go to court, things like that. What happened before? In business, it's a big mistake to focus on precedent. You need to focus for five, ten or more years out. You've got to anticipate what's going to happen. And so it's very different. And that applies to the business of law. You can't take, you know, your law training. You better figure out what it's going to be. And it's a herd mentality in the industry by and large. So most people are going to look and say, oh, a, B, C, D company did this, and we should do this because they did that. Like, I appointed a chief innovation officer when I first started serving eight-plus years ago. Hired a diversity officer. There are firms that are just starting to discuss that based on a recent roundtable I went to. Hmm. They're like, is anyone doing this? <laughs> and, and it's just like, you know, you're almost embarrassed because I don't want to, you don't want to come off as one-upping somebody. I don't want to come off as, you know with any pretense or arrogance. So you just sit back and just say, and if they asked, how did you do it? Then maybe it's, you know, it's a little bit more, but I raised my hand. I said, yeah, we've been doing it for years. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you recognized early on that as you go through life and business and your career, it really is all about the people. That's yeah. why you were persistent probably in the beginning or quote unquote pain in the ass is because you realize that, you know, you don't have much to lose and it is about building the relationships and, you know, you only live once. I know it's a platitude, but because you have nothing to lose, 
you might as well try to partner with the right people to bring on a diversity of people to have different opinions because ultimately that actually will help you. Right. So it's funny that you say that uh, other people are waking up now as if, as if it's a thought leadership uh, thing to focus on. But I'm curious uh, briefly if you can maybe mention if we go back really quickly before we hear the rest of your story. You mentioned that you used to be an introvert. Yes. And uh, I remember when Sergey and I, we were in a uh, political debate club in, in high school. I know. We were cool. And uh, But in the beginning, I remember, like, my, we, we did some theater and stuff when we were little, but it was always a little, we were also somewhat introverted. At least shy. I was. Yeah, we were yeah. pretty shy. And we were immigrants. We came here when we were nine. We didn't speak English, so definitely shy. And I remember at one point we were uh, at in D.C. and everybody you know that came there. It was junior statesman of America. You had to go and uh, defend your position for a particular bill or something that you wanted to get passed to the House or the Senate. And I remember I was standing on stage and I really owned the topic. And I think I was fifteen or sixteen. And for about twenty minutes afterwards, people were asking me questions while I was on stage. And it was a good crowd, like sixty, seventy people. And I loved it. I didn't want to get off stage. And that's the moment for me when I realized, oh, well, maybe I'd like well, the attention, I guess. But also, maybe I'm not as introverted as I thought. Mm-hmm. Is there a moment for you where you thought you broke out of the shell or it just kind of developed over time? Um, no, there was definitely a moment. So I know when I was in high school, uh, we had four like class offices, for senior class office. And my high school had 1,456 people in my class that started. About a couple hundred less graduated, but that's another <laughs> topic. And so I ran, I had a friend running for president, a friend running for vice president, so I ran for secretary. And I had to get up and talk and give a talk in front of everybody. And after I did that and was able to win and do that, then that happened. And, you know, I had amazing opportunities. I got to Jimmy Carter, uh, former President Carter, came to speak to our class and whatever. And, you know, it was just, there were just amazing uh, opportunities. And then I started doing a little bit of radio broadcasting uh, for our local sports. In high school? Yeah. So this is natural locally. Podcasting. Well, I, <laughs> you have the I voice. Know. That's for sure. I, yeah, I have the. I have a, yeah, I have a face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that that sounds like a, a definitely a transformational moment. So, if we fast forward a bit, um, in the pre-interview, you told us that a friend of yours actually poached you to join uh, Peabody and Brown. It was uh, at the time the prede- predecessor in, in 1987, and then by 1995, so eight years later, you were elected equity partner. Um, tell us about why you think you were one of the people that was able to get to that position in a period of eight years. I mean, were you bringing in lots of deals? Were you uh, making relations with the right people? It, not everybody gets into that position. So what's the story of how, how you think you got elected? Right. And the initial partnership was an income partner at the end of 92. Um, yes. I, I mean, I had business as an associate. I just, I love dealing with people and I, I am very big, especially when I think back for that time on building external and internal networks, which I think folks like yourself and the whole next generation gets a lot better than our generation. I, th- I think they really realize the importance of not only your internal network, but your external network. And, uh, you know, I just was very active and I, I did have business. I got a lot of business through a lot of volunteer work hmm. that I did with no, not to, you know, do the volunteer work because of business, but because I needed to do something else and always have needed to do something else besides practice law. Hmm. You know, I did that and I, and, you know, I had that benefit of doing the volunteer work. I taught, 
so I ended up getting clients from Boston College, where I was teaching in the business school for 23 years. And, you know, and you just get referrals. The bigger your network, like, you know, I'm not out there practicing full time now for nine years, but I still get millions of dollars of referrals wow. almost every year. So it's just, it's just, if you build that out there and people know you and think, trust you and think you'll take care of them, you can do that. But it, it, you really, it, I mean, it's a team sport and you, you have to be out there and you have to have a great team. Yeah. I, I teach an entrepreneurship class uh, right now at Purchase College, and I just had my last round of uh, conversations with students. It's a small class, so I'm able to do one-on-ones with them. And uh, I asked them, you know, what was the benefit that you got from the class? Now, I'm, I'm not an academic. I'm wearing a blazer. Yes, I know, but I'm not. And uh, the way that I teach the class is reverse classroom style. It's a lot of experience. You're mm-hmm. going out talking to customers. I'm making you go to networking events. Uh, I'm making you actually build your business. As a matter of fact, I didn't let people into the class if I didn't think they were working on their business. And so one of the questions I asked is, what did you think of the class? And half the students, I would say, said that I didn't realize how important building your network is. Which yeah. in college, a lot of times you don't realize, but even as an adult, it's easy to stay home and not want to, let's say, go in a, to an event uh, or a dinner or somewhere you, where you or a volunteering opportunity where you yeah. might rub shoulders with other people uh, and actually develop a real relationships that, that might bring in business. Right. Um, and same with these students is, you know, they're now, after two of the students have uh, internship opportunities. And after a month, I mean, they went to two networking events and they already have internship opportunities. Yeah. Uh, the other ones uh, are actually having customer meetings, which most people, you know, when they're 19, 20 years old, they don't even know how to have a customer meeting. And so they're getting comfortable with the idea that this is actually what's important about building right. a career, not necessarily... Uh, figuring out how to, a secretive way to make money or something that somebody doesn't know. But networking can mean so many different things. But how do you actually uh, take a relationship from, let's say, an informal relationship where maybe you're volunteering together or you just meet whatever at, at an event to a working relationship where you're actually going to do business together? What's what's? I don't want to say tactics because you're not necessarily maybe going to that situation expecting to close deals or get deals. For some people, that might not that might not be natural for. What are some techniques that you use to actually convert and change a relationship to a business one? Uh, that's a good question. Initially, I mean, I would never just ask somebody for their business. People do that today. I wouldn't want people thinking that I wanted to get to know them better or be closer to them because I wanted them to be a client. Um, so I, I wouldn't do that. But what I would do was I would get to know people better. And I always spoke passionately about what I did. But more importantly, I got to know what they did and I got to know their business and their industry and became, you know, try to be, learn as much as I could about each person's business that I met. So sometimes when you learn about what other people do, it presents opportunities to refer them business. So in some cases, I was able to then help their business mm. before they ever became a client. And you do that and they, they're so grateful. They obviously want to help you. Mm-hmm. And, but a lot is building that trusting relationship. And, and, and you can't be phony about it. And you got to have things in common. And folks think that to develop business, because we're all salespeople, even in professions. Just to add really quickly, uh, that's an incredibly important thing to say, which is add the value, which a lot of people do say figure out how to add value before you ask for something in return. Uh, and it can be hard because how do you know how to add value? But w- as you're developing that relationship, you will find opportunities where something that's unique to you or your ability to help, even if it's an introduction, is adding value. Right. And I think that's right. And 
you know, professionals, you know, until the last decade or so, almost looked down, especially professionals in large professional service firms, whether it be a accounting firm, whatever, uh, looked down on that part of it because they're professionals and you shouldn't have to do that as professionals. But we're all running businesses. Mm. It's a business. You know, that's what folks do in business. The other excuse that I will hear is that that's good. It fits with your personality, but that doesn't work for me because I'm not you. Yeah. And and my answer to that, even though you didn't ask me the question, <laughs> my answer to that is that if you look at clients or customers, they come in all shapes and sizes and anybody can have a match with, with some. You might not click with everybody, but anybody could have a match. And what I've said before is, you know, you can't be afraid of failure. You know, you, you have to keep going. You have to keep trying. And you look at, you know, a baseball player could have a Hall of Fame career if they get three hits out of every 10 at-bats, right? right? And they bat 300. You're going to have misses. It's it's okay. Right. And sometimes you'll put, you'll do a, respond to, a, a, you know, a proposal, an RFP or something, and you'll try and win a, a client's business, and it won't work, and someone else will get it. It doesn't mean they're not going to call you in a year. Yeah. It doesn't mean, you know, I, I've always been fortunate to get business from people that I work opposite of, which I consider ultimate compliment because you're working with them, you're competitors, and somehow, you know, they like me based yeah. on how the transaction went. I, maybe I was nicer to them than other people or whatever, but you never know. The other part of it is, and this is certainly true when talking to professionals, most professionals need to hear or see something eight to ten times before they adopt it and then before they'll believe in it. And you could tell them this is what we want to do as our business and it's going to fall on deaf ears and you need the exposures. It's the same thing with people and building trusting relationships. You need multiple exposures. Nobody knows how they're going to come. Maybe you bump into somebody at a kid's baseball game. Maybe, maybe you're volunteering at a similar event. Maybe you've had lunch. Maybe you have multiple introductions. It, it, but those additional contacts, and today it's more on social media. Even in social media today can substitute for in-face contacts. I cannot even tell you how many clients and relationships that have been rekindled because of my activity on social media hmm. and how many requests I get, you know, we know you don't do this, but could you recommend somebody else to do this? So those contacts today can be made much less formally. You know, you start connecting, hearing, and, and people share their lives. My God, you know more about people than you want to know, right? And oh, some cool. people just think that every minute of their day is <laughs> something worthy of reporting and, and, and putting out there. And a lot of it sounds like fiction to me. And if it's that good, then it makes everybody else feel bad, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I'll tell you a, a cool story about what I just did, and I posted on social media about it. But it's relevant to what you were talking yeah. about, so bear with me. I was at a screening for a new Showtime show called Of Mikes and Men. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. I think it's coming out May 10th. Sorry, Showtime, if that's not the right date. Uh, but it's about the Wu-Tang Clan and how they got started. Anybody here listen to the Wu-Tang Clan now? But you know of it, right? Okay, you can raise your hands. It's, it's, a, cool, it's a cool thing to, to, to do. I actually didn't. I was more of a Tupac guy. But, uh, <laughs> but my friend works in the entertainment industry, and he brought me to the screening uh, that not everybody gets to go to because the people that go there get to vote at the Emmys. And uh, after the screening, the uh, people that are on the docuseries come out on stage and do a little panel and there's like three or four members of the Wu-Tang Clan. 
there. And if you know the Wu-Tang Clan, you know the leader is RZA, RZA. Hopefully I pronounced that right, RZA, sorry. Uh, and uh, this, this guy, I mean, look, they were huge in the 90s. They were able to retain brand equity. They're pretty famous uh, still to this day, for, at the very least for people that like rap and hip-hop. And so, but afterwards, there's a mixer uh, with a couple hundred people. It's a relatively big event. And I saw right afterwards, and this does not happen in every event. I've gone to events like this before, but every single member that was there, including the director, his name is Sasha, uh, they came out and they were out there networking and meeting people. And even though half the people there were like me, I'm not in entertainment. Well, we kind of are. But, you know, I'm not going to be vote, have a vote in the Emmy. They were still out there meeting everybody. And RZA walked by me, and I was actually wearing this blazer. And he said, oh, man, that's a dope blazer. I was like, really, man? And we got a picture of it, obviously, uh, to prove it. That's why I wore it today, by the way. So you guys will be impressed, just like RZA. Uh, but the point is, you know, despite how successful you are, despite how many people might know you, even if you're famous in that scenario, that person knows the value of meeting people, building connections, and actually putting in the hard work. So it never really stops. But the next question I wanted to ask you was, as you were kind of moving up in the ranks, when was the first time you got the opportunity to lead other people? In other words, having other people report to you. And how did that feel? Were you naturally able to do it? Uh, how did you develop those skills? When did that happen? Well, I mean, I, the first opportunity was probably in high school, right? And then I had additional opportunities in college as well. And uh, But with the, if I'm looking at our business and the firm, when I ran for, it was an election for executive committee, and I ran against a couple of people who had been doing it for like a long time, um, that was the first opportunity because that five-person committee that I was on ran the firm. So that was that was a lot of years ago. That was when I was a young partner. <laughs> uh, so that was you know nineteen ninety five. So uh, and and I had different opinions than other people, but I and I kept pushing for the firm to do things. They're small things, like um, not small for the time, but like gym memberships pay for for everybody. Hmm. In mid nineties, we didn't do that. Right. You know, people nobody did that. Them. They looked at it. They said. You know, that's going to cost us. Why would we want to spend? And, and it just wasn't, you know, my firm. It was everybody. Nobody. They said, who else is doing it? Hmm. I'm like, nobody is. I mean, it's wrong. I said, don't you want people to be healthy? You know, and just, mm -hmm. and, you know, it's, it's, it's a stressful profession. So we did. And, and we did that. The other thing that I remember doing was uh, pushing to go business casual. And lawyers, you know, when I started and in my first two decades of practice, uh, just feel that a really nice suit and, you know, how they dress is a uniform that they need that shows their success. I don't like it because coming from my background, I find it to be elitist and that people are being judged by their clothes. So I think people should be able to wear whatever they want to wear, uh, as long as, you know, it's not a distraction in the workplace and doesn't, uh, you, you know, isn't, isn't overly sloppy. So I was getting no movement. I tried to schedule a meeting on this and <laughs> I kept getting resisted by the managing partner. He's a really good guy. It's just a different time, right? It's just, uh, things are different. And finally I said, you know, I'm a member of the executive committee. I can call a partner meeting as any partner could do. I went to you out of respect, but I need you to call this meeting. 
And so he called the meeting and he did it like the day before Christmas or something, <laughs> figuring, screw you, Glencher, you know, you're not, you, you, I'll call a meeting, but you're never going to get this. And he really didn't think there was anybody that cared. I think if he thought people truly cared, he might have, but he got the vote 35 to three hmm. to go business casual in the mid nineties where I only knew one other firm that was starting that. So it can help. It's just, but for me, it was more a class system and how you're judging people. And I don't want people to, people shouldn't, you know, be able to think that people wear suits are more important than people who don't. So one common theme throughout this conversation is persistence, but sometimes persistence can be perceived as annoyance. And I think there's a fine line. How can you be tactfully persistent? How do you push people, but in a way that you don't actually force yourself to them to alienate you, that they actually are an ally. How do you do that? That's a good question. I mean, I try not to be obnoxious, right? I try not to meet, go there, and I don't. And I think the biggest thing is it's something our business is very strong on throughout the organization is real high degree of mutual respect. You need to respect everybody and everybody's opinions. And people who aren't respectful really don't make it here. It's, it's a really good, strong, collaborative, respectful culture. So I think you just need to do that. And then, you know, you can't tell, I've got 1,500 colleagues, you can't tell lawyers what to do. Okay. I mean, I can, but that's not an effective <laughs> way. I can tell people what to do and they'll probably do it, but you, I don't tell people what to do. I try and show people options and I hope that the option that I may be recommending will resonate with them. If they see benefit in that to themselves, they choose that option. If they get it and see, if they don't, then maybe they, they don't, they won't. Although I, I, I really haven't experienced that, not knowingly. I'm sure people resist certain things behind the scenes and whatever, but uh, I've never been with a group of people or, who are so company first and aligned in our strategy and our values. So I think you know, that's really important. And that, and that's, you need that in a workplace today because you're profitable and you make money. Nobody cares. You know, we care because that's why people show up. It's our jobs. It pays for our lives. And, and if it doesn't make money, nobody's going to be sitting here and nobody's coming in and I'm out of my job. Right. But you really need more in your values and living your values. And, uh, your business needs to have a soul. And that soul needs to be part of things that you give back to the community, things that you do. And so that the rest of the world identifies with you and your business as more than, hey, they're just a bunch of, you know, highly paid lawyers or something. Hmm. So today, Nixon Peabody is, a, I want to say, 1,500-person firm, if, if that's correct, $550 million company. But talk about the rest of that story there, because 95, you became a partner. Uh, relatively soon after, you headed up the Boston office. And then relatively soon after that, you became the head of the whole thing. So talk us through that story. How did that happen? And uh, how did you get the ultimate opportunity to be at the helm? They did to me what I do to people today. Anybody that's a real pain in the ass that has all these opinions or whatever and thinks that we're doing anything wrong, I bring them under the tent. <laughs> and, I, and I get them to be part of the solution, mm. if you think. Because I'm not 
we all can do better. I can do better. We're all a sum of our pluses and minuses. My key with folks is I look at pluses and try to use those. And generally, people's strengths are what they do best. Hmm. So I'll look at that. But in back to the 95, I, I was just active. I mean, I was on the committee at a very you know, young age uh, that ran the firm. And then we ended up merging. We, our 180 lawyer firm merged with another 180 lawyer firm. And, the, and that was the biggest merger we ever did. That was 1999. I was on the governing committee and we did it pro rata. Our governing committee is like Congress. You have representatives from each office. And uh, because Boston was the biggest office, we got three representatives. <laughs> And I just saw it as you had too many people in the room. So I wanted the committee to be reduced. And I said, and, but I knew the only way I'd make headway is if I just said, I'm stepping off. So here's one reduction. Hmm. But we got to make this more efficient. Um, then in 04, the end of 03, uh, the co-managing partners came to me and asked me if I would run Boston. We were in the process of doing a move. And I said, Sure love to take on the challenge and you know I have a big practice and dividing it but I like doing the other stuff I got bored just practicing law I shouldn't say that that's a terrible thing to say <laughs> but I just you know a lot of what we do is redundant and what energized me to practice law and I could have continued practicing law forever were the people I dealt with not internally on my team and externally as clients I worked with people that I really like so I did that and at the time, it was interesting because they said to me, the good news is you're the most approachable person in the firm. The bad news is, is you're the most approachable person in the firm. <laughs> when people come to see you, get up, stand at the doorway. You know, you have to monitor your time better. So they left. And, you know, today I'm welcoming to feedback. I wasn't as welcoming to feedback 15 <laughs> years ago. But because uh, and especially they, you know, they had many qualities I admired, but interpersonal skills wasn't high on that list uh, and emotional intelligence was even further behind so I tried to it's like with everybody you try you know I said I'm sure there's some degree of truth in everything right all these perceptions there perceptions can be reality so I try to say okay and try to manage myself better but knew that I couldn't limit um, my interactions with people that wanted to, to speak with you, you just learn how to manage it better. I mean, there's some people that will, I learned early on and I figured I could fix them. They were broke. I could fix <laughs> them. And you spent hundreds of hours and you realize you're not fixing it. So it takes you 10 years of your life to figure that out or something. And, uh, but you got to spend your time in the end, uh, where you think you can do the most good. Hmm. I'm curious, you know, because the legal profession is interesting. We're all told doctor, lawyer, engineer, right? <clears throat> Uh, we started off in finance for the same reason. Our brothers are in computer science for the same reason. But the legal profession is a little bit different now. It's relatively saturated. And uh, despite that, though, the firm has been growing. And you guys, it seems to be, are having continued success uh, and continuing to add value in the market. What do you think is different about what you do versus maybe your competitors or generally about how you go about business? I think a lot of it goes to the culture. We have a and we've been told this when we surveyed our industry leaders and clients, including people who weren't clients, but maybe we wanted to have as clients, and asked them, what is your perception of Nixon Peabody? And continuous theme we kept getting back were really nice people, 
you know, great at what they do, really nice people, they actually work together well and actually like each other, mm. which to me, I'm like, wow, people work with people they don't like. Um, and so that came back extremely strong. And I played off that, you know, and I played off, uh, we developed a brand when I started in this role. And with the help of my, my marketing team, I told them what I wanted to do. I was very frustrated by other people's business models and did not want to make them our model. And what's that mean? If you get down the top 100 firms in the world and you look at them, and I pretended to do that one day <laughs> night while I was reading a trade magazine and, and looking, you know, watching a ball game in the background, and I'm looking at all these firms like I'm pretending to be in someone who needs to choose a firm. And I'm like, Okay, they all got different names. Okay, they have X number of lawyers, X number of offices, and oh yeah, and the partners say they make an average of this. There wasn't any differentiation in the market. And I thought that if we could differentiate what we do and how we're perceived, one hundredth of one percent, any if we can make any progress doing that, that that would help our business. So we set out to do that. We set out with a brand that was, you know, sensing ahead, that was looking down the road, a requirement that you know the industries and businesses that your your clients come from and in, and you learn those businesses on your own time and coming up with new ideas. And everybody would say, this is how we've done things. And I would just say, forget about it. Forget how we've done things. You're smart. You've got a great brain. Tell me what you do. Let's start over. What would you do? And don't worry about consequences or anything like that. And I encourage people to try new things and said, if you fail, you're not going to get punished, hmm. but try it, you know, try something else. And I think that the collaboration, the opportunity, and, you know, when you're developing a, a so-called brand and lawyers didn't develop brands then, you know, that was not, you know, they did logos. So let's do our letterhead, but not have letterhead. Should the logo change? Should you have a line this way? Should it be blue, green, black, etc.? But if you're doing that, you know, get other people involved from all parts of the organization, all different levels of experience and collaborate in that way. And we did that for our brand. The brand became a part of our identity. It became a filter of how we viewed everything. Um, diversity and inclusion was part of that and top of my goals and leadership development things. I wasn't thrilled with uh, the amount of time we were spending on leadership development since you know, people are our best assets. These are our assets. And I call them elevator assets because they get on the elevator every night <laughs> and then they have to decide they want to take that elevator back the next day. Hmm. We did things with our space did things that were unheard of. My fellow colleagues who I sit on roundtables with, and I'm, I'm up to, it's usually 22 at a time, but up to a the top 100 firms, they're like, how can you mandate that everybody gets the same size office? Hmm. And it, there was a little bit of resistance at the beginning, but we did that, and a lot of glass and openness and collaboration, I think. All of that together, okay, it's a quick summary, but all of that together made us feel different. And I know that when... I've had the opportunity to evaluate other business proposals and have other people who want to become part of our business. Our partners come to say, tell me, or some of my marketing staff will just say, they're not on brand. 
So as um, you know, sometimes I think I created a monster <laughs> and, and looking through this. So I just said, I know you like what you see in the mirror, but we have to be open to continuous change. And just because they're not on our brand doesn't mean we they can't teach us something or they could be part of it going forward. You know, one thing that you said is so important. Um, and I actually, Vadim and I wrote an article in Harvard Business Review a few months ago that mentioned this, and it was titled, How to Encourage Entrepreneurial Thinking on Your Team. And one of those things is a lot of leaders and a lot of people say, we encourage failure. You should fail. You should try things. But then the minute you try something and fail, they punish you, whether verbally or some, in some other ways, uh, in front of your peers or maybe, maybe not giving you other opportunities. And so while they say one thing, they are actually encouraging the opposite type of behavior by their own behavior. And so I think it's so important what you say to actually follow through and let people experiment and know that you're going to have their back even when they fail. Yeah, no, I that's, agree. That's so big. And so I really appreciate that you do that with your firm. And I think that's why um, you probably see a lot of satisfied individuals. Andrew, it's been really fantastic uh, having you on the show. I think uh, a lot of people can learn from your story, but also from your insights and your outlook uh, that uh, the fact that, you know, you wanted your career to change and take on a more leadership role, uh, that you were always a people person, that you actually saw value in taking the time and connecting with individuals, even if it meant spending a couple hundred hours to learn that you can't impact somebody, I bet you still had some impact on that person. And maybe it wasn't immediately visible through the output of their work, but maybe it was visible at home or something new that they were trying. So you never know what impact you have on people. And I feel like the fact that you care is the reason why this firm has continued to grow. The reason why you were able to rise up the ranks and uh, why I'm certain that Nixon Peeve is going to continue to be successful. So thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you both. It's my privilege. Thank you. Thank you. Don't trip over this. We don't want to get sued by a lawyer.